Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. And today is Sunday, December 22nd, 2013. The share ID number for Friday, December 20th is 5650. That's 5650. This morning, a vision for you focuses on Chapter 2, There is a Solution. That can be found in the big book on page 17. This chapter shouts the good news. There is help. There is hope. There is a way out. There is a solution brings into sharp focus our powerlessness over the merciless obsession and our need for a higher power relationship as our defense against that first bite. With us today to speak more about Chapter 2 is Harlan, a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a very loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, and he is dedicated to teaching and sharing his experience, strength, and hope, and sharing the program of recovery as outlined in the big book. Harlan intensively works with other compulsive overeaters, and we're very grateful to have his time and energy on the line this morning. Welcome to A Vision for You, Harlan. Good morning. Good morning, Leah. I'm glad to be here. Should I just get started? That's it. The floor is all yours. All right. Thank you so much. Chapter 2, There is a Solution, has a title that works really on a couple of levels. And there is a solution, meaning I have to really emancipate myself from this search for how to find that solution. It makes it very simple for me. And one of the things that God does in this program is he makes it simple for me. It's my ego and my brain that want to complicate things. But there is a solution, and that is the one in the big book, and that is the one that that, uh, tells me to follow the steps as they're outlined here in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. There is a solution is another way to look at that title. And the solution is what we're going to be talking about here primarily is step two. We're going to talk a little bit about some other things first, but we're going to be talking about the origin and the historical flashpoint of step two and how step two came into the program. We have step one from Dr. Silkworth, and Dr. Silkworth told Bill Wilson at the Towns Hospital in New York City uh, of the problem, and the problem is a twist of the mind and an allergy of the body. And the twist of the mind will incessantly drive me into the food and the allergy of the body will make it absolutely impossible for me to stop eating certain foods, certain amounts of foods once I have started. So now that we've seen the problem in the doctor's opinion and we've illustrated the problem uh, further in Bill's story and we talk about step two in the second half of Bill's story, Now we're going to focus in on the need for the spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And it says on page 17, we of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. And for the word hopeless, for me in in Overeaters Anonymous, what that means to me is, am I indeed out of ideas? 
Because if I'm harboring ideas on how I am going to recover on my own, by myself, with no help at all, I'm just going to hunker down and be on a diet, I am doomed to, to death. Nearly all have recovered. Now, there's, this, there's another time where we see this word recovered. Can you recover? The big book absolutely says that you can. And that doesn't mean that there isn't months left at the end of my money, and that doesn't mean that somehow I have risen above the level of a human being. But what that means is when I woke up today, I was neither fighting food, I was neither obsessing about what I was going to eat, nor was I obsessing about what I was going to eat. I am in a place today of neutrality, and it says they have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans. Now, obviously, the book was written in 37 and 38, and it was published in, in April of 39. If the book were written today, it would say we are average citizens of the world. Overeaters Anonymous is in 60 countries, and Alcoholics Anonymous is in 170 countries. All sections of this country and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship of friendliness and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Now, that line really brings me back to my childhood, and I have witnessed a lot of people in my lifetime who have been survivors of tremendous, tremendous misfortune. Um, people who came out of the displaced persons camps, people who were emancipated from the concentration camps of World War II, people who came out of European massacres prior to World War II, and they would pick up and they would know each other, they would find each other. And I grew up in Chicago, and these men and women would find each other, and there was a language of the heart. There was the language of the soul that they spoke, that they had survived this ordeal. And if there's anything that we come to OA to do, it's to find that identification. We think we come in for information, but we really stay for identification, that common denominator that brings us together, <clears throat> excuse me, it, to those who understand no explanation of this illness is necessary, to those who do not understand no explanation is plausible. And I believe that for many years of my life, I believe that the way I thought about food and the way I behaved around food and the way I obsessed over things was secret unto me. And it never occurred to me that there were others who did exactly the same thing until I came into Overeaters Anonymous. But that alone would not, would not do the trick because it goes on to say here, unlike the feeling of the ship's passing, of ship's <laughs> of the ship's passengers, I knew I'd get it. However, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. 
The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. So God in the book does not just give us the problem. He doesn't just give us this, this allergy of the body and this, this twist of the mind. He also gives us the common solution so that not only can we share the problem, we can share in the solution to the problem. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. And again, I'm reminded, and there's going to be many references in this chapter and throughout the book, of action. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. This is an action program, and as we're going to find out in the coming weeks, there is no chapter in the book called Into Thinking, Wishing, Needing, or Praying, but there is a chapter called Into Action. <clears throat> Sorry about that. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. An illness of this sort, and we have come to believe in an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him, and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness, for with it there goes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It engulfs all whose lives touch the sufferers. It brings misunderstanding fierce resentment, financial insecurity, disgusted friends and employers, warped lives of blameless children, sad wives and parents, anyone can increase the list. And when I was a child, I was fat. My parents were, were morbidly obese as well. And I used to secretly pray that I could at least be handicapped blind or crippled in some way so that people and I would stop blaming myself. And along the line, I had to understand through the miracle of this program that this did not happen because of my parents. This did not happen because someone in my life zigged when they should have zagged or I zigged when I should have zagged. This happened because it happened. And my favorite title of any story in the back of the big book, my favorite title is Because I'm an Alcoholic. This has nothing to do with externals. It has to do with the fact that I was born with a mind that was comforted and got the effect from the food. All food? No. Kit Kat bars? Yes. Uh, broccoli? No. Unless it was covered in cheese, dressing, breaded, fried somehow. But no. But my mind is comforted by that effect that comes about instantly from eating certain foods, certain amounts of foods, and I was also born with an allergy of the body, which makes it impossible for me to stop once I have started. And continuing, it says here, we hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are or who may be affected. There are many. There are many, many people who are affected by our compulsive overeating, and no one looks at this and and says, well, gosh, that's an illness. Well, I shouldn't say no one. Uninformed people do not look at us and say, gosh, I bet that person has an illness. We look at these people, that society looks at these people rather and says, these people brought it on themselves. The misunderstanding in the television talk shows, the radio talk shows, the infomercials, the deliberate, the deliberate misleading of us, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning too, 
of the television commercial is unbelievable. But this is an illness, and to repeat, I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it. I am free of any blame. I am free of any responsibility. My responsibility right now, 100%. I'm sorry? 100% lies within my responsibility to recover now that I know. Highly competent psychiatrists who have dealt with us have found it sometimes impossible to persuade an alcoholic to discuss the situation without reserve. Strangely enough, wives, parents, and intimate friends usually find us even more unapproachable than do the psychiatrist and the doctor. When I was a little kid, I remember I was not quite five yet, and maybe six. People would yell at my mother and father, and they would say things like, how can Harlan be hungry? We just ate. Why is he eating cookies? Why is he eating candy? Whatever that might have been. Because in their mind, they associated eating with hunger. They associated me eating more food with me being more hungry. And when I got to be about five or six years old, seven years old, certainly, they started yelling and screaming directly at me. And when they would yell and scream at my parents, it would embarrass me and hurt me because I knew it was embarrassing and hurting them. And then when they would start screaming and yelling at me, I shut down emotionally. I didn't know how to beat them in an argument because I assumed they were 100% right and I was 100% wrong. And what they did not know is more than anything in this world, I wanted to be who they wanted me to be. I wanted to be the kid that when I ate lunch or I ate dinner or whatever it was I was eating, that I was full, I was done eating, and I ate no more. But for reasons which I did not understand myself, the eating just continued and continued and continued and continued, and it had no bearing on hunger, but I didn't know how to tell them that. So what I would just learn to do at a very early age is shut down emotionally and tell them whatever it is they wanted to hear so that they would leave me alone, and then when I got away from them, I would eat Chicago and most of Wisconsin. Continuing, but the ex-problem drinker, and this is in italics, has found this solution, who has found this solution, sorry, who is properly armed with facts about himself can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. And I'm reminded of the first meeting of Bill and Bob. It was in Akron, Ohio, at the Cyberland Gatehouse, and Bill was there, and Bob came over, and he made Ann feel. Ann was his wife. Ann Smith and Bob came over, and they said that they would give this guy from New York 15 minutes. And they went upstairs, and they were up there for five hours. And when they got done, Bob said to Ann, this is pointing to Bill, this is the first man that ever understood my drinking. Now, why is that funny? Why is that so interesting? Because Bill Wilson never said anything about Bob's drinking. He was talking about himself. But through the language of the heart, Bob could understand, Bob could translate that language of the heart so that he knew that Bill was not getting this information from a book or a movie. 
He was getting it from his own experiences. And in so doing, it made something, it made a difference to him. It made something happen in his mind that said, this man understands. That the man who is making the approaches has the same difficulty, that he obviously knows what he's talking about, that his whole department shouts at the new prospect, that he is a man with a real answer, that has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever except the sincere desire to be helpful, that there are no fees to pay, no access to crime, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are conditions we have found most effective after such an approach that they pick up their beds and walk again. None of us makes a sole vocation of this work, nor do we think its effectiveness would be increased if we did. Now, this is an extremely important concept for all of us, and this will blow the doors off of a lot of OA programs that I have done and experienced and seen as I travel the country doing big book studies. I get a chance to talk to people all over the country. The line is, we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. And there are many people and many areas where the OA programs are stuck in the first half of the first step. And if I'm stuck in the first half of the first step, and it's the food, the food, the food, the food, and I do not expand my spiritual life, then I'm on a diet. And what do I know well about diets and harlots? They do not work. We feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning, meaning that there must be an end. There must not be an end, but there must be more to come. A much more important demonstration of our principles, the steps, lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. In yeah. other words, we practice these we practice these principles in all of our affairs. We do the steps in everything that we do. And so I've got to get out of this OA thing, this OA treadmill, if you will, of being stuck in the first half of the first step and, and calling in my food and making three outreach calls a day and going to three meetings a week is not going to bring about the necessary spiritual awakening that is, going to be, that is going to be essential to my survival against the onslaught of an illness that I was born with. It will not suffice. It's not about whether I'm eating a peach or an apple or a pear. It's not about that. It's about working the steps. And when I work the steps, as we're going to find out on page 23, we're going to read the line that says the may not, the, excuse me, the real problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than the body. I'm going to have a spiritual awakening. Why do we need that spiritual awakening? So that my mind will already feel better. It will not focus in on that intense desire for the food to make it feel better. Okay. All Harlan? Yeah. Hi, it's Leah. Sorry to interrupt Hi. you. It appears that every once in a while your phone is breaking up. Is there some oh. way that we might be able to remedy that? I don't. It's not. Uh, I'll switch. I'll switch. Let's just from try a another solution. A okay, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Sorry in the worst case scenario, I could call from a landline. Okay. 
Okay. We don't want to miss one word, Harlan, not okay. one word. Let me just plug in a headset. Is that better? Is that a little better? Yes. Okay. All right. Good. All right. Much appreciated. Okay. All right. So in review, before we before we had to take that little turn there, we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. And this is something I could spend the entire month talking about, and we still wouldn't cover it. But a much more demonstration of our principles, the steps, lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. In other words, I'm going to practice the steps in all of my affairs. All of us spend much of our spare time in the sort of effort which we are going to describe. A few are fortunate enough to be so situated that they can give nearly all their time to the work. If we keep on the way we are going, there is little doubt that much good will result, but the surface of the problem would hardly be scratched. Those of us who live in large cities and are overcome by the reflection that close by hundreds are dropping into oblivion every day. Many could recover if they had the opportunity we have enjoyed. How then shall we present that which has been so freely given us? And again, I'm reminded of something, that there probably is not one single person listening to this on the phone now or who will be listening to this on the recording that doesn't live near hundreds of people, at the very least dozens of people who are dying from their untreated addiction. Many of us who attend face-to-face meetings, and dare I say some of us on this phone right now, are dying of their untreated food addiction. But this is not a program for people who need it, and it's not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. And there are three things that we can do for the people who are suffering. We can work the steps and recover, Work the steps and recover and work the steps and recover and show them what this is doing for us. Show them. We have to stop telling them and show them what it's doing for us. Of necessity, there will be a discussion of matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. So if I'm going to be intolerant of you and I'm going to be absolutely unloving toward you, it's going to make me less effective. Love and tolerance of others is our code. That's step 10. Love and tolerance of others is our code. That's right here. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we might help meet their needs. Now, in order for me to see how vital something is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the first things I do is see how many times is this theme repeated. And the altruistic movement that Dr. Silkworth talks about is a beginning. Bill Wilson says in his story that he... Take me back. I later so long. Are you there? Okay. When all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. And all through the book, especially on page 77, it says, 
my real purpose is to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. In another part of the book, it's going to say, helping others is the foundation stone of my recovery. There's an entire chapter dedicated to working with others. And so this, this idea, this idea is paramount to all other ideas. You may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us became so light. very ill from drinking. Uh-huh. Harlan, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Harlan. What I'm going to do is I'm going to mute the line, and then please come back in by pressing star one to unmute. We're having a little technical difficulty here, okay? Okay. So I'm going to mute everybody, and then if you press star one to unmute, we'll hear you again. Okay. Thank you for your patience. All right. Okay. Am I back? Yes, you are. Thank you. Continue. Okay. You You may already have asked yourself why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary. We have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you are an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? It's the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. Again, we want to look at how many times it's repeated. In the forward to the first edition, it says, the main purpose of this book is to let us know specifically how we have recovered. On page 45, the thesis line of the big book says, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. So we see the repetition here, that this is the purpose of the book, is to help us find that higher power that we are willing to believe in. And if we are willing to believe in that higher power, and we are willing to show that faith by working the steps, we will not be compulsively again. It will not happen. If I'm having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, you, couldn't, you can't force that food down my throat. I just don't want it. And the real miracle of Overeaters Anonymous is not that I have not compulsively overeaten in almost 15 years, December 29th of this year, which is just a few days from now. If I'm lucky enough to make it, I'll have 15 years. That's not the miracle of OA. The miracle of OA is I don't want to compulsively overeat because heaven help you if you stood in my way and I wanted to eat those raisinets or I wanted to eat that cake or pie or cookies. Heaven help you, I would trample you. So the miracle is I don't want the food. Okay. We shall tell you what we have done, not what you should do, what we have done. Before going into a detailed discussion, it may be well to summarize some points as we see them. How many times people have said to us, I can take it or leave it alone. Why can't you? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is, all the up again. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. 
and I've been hospitalized from this illness on a couple of occasions here. And invariably, when they see extreme morbid obesity on your diagnosis, they send up the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the nutritionist, and they give you a lot of really valuable tips. One of the doctors one time said to me, exercise more and eat less. I thought, man, you are a genius. And then the dietician came up and said, well, whatever you think you're going to eat, eat half. I said, man, you're a genius too. And then somebody else came up. I think it was the nutritionist or somebody came up and they said to me, no, this was a psychologist came up to my room one time in a hospital and said, put a picture of something you really want on your refrigerator. And when you see the picture, you won't eat so much. And I said, Man, where have you been all my life? You are a genius. And inside I'm laughing because these people don't get it. They have no concept of what it's like to be a compulsive overeater. None whatsoever. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome, he may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquid consumption once he starts to drink. That's because of the physical allergy. Bill found himself pounding on the bar, wondering how it happened. Chapter 1, page page, uh, 5. Wondering how it happened, but he might as well get good and drunk this time, and he did. That's the allergy. The mind pushes us into the food and the body absolutely makes it impossible for us to stop. Here is the fellow who has been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world, yet let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor, but in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes, and he has a promising career ahead of him. He uses his gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family and himself, and when pulls the structure down on his head by a senseless series of sprees, he is the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early next morning, he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down the waste pipe. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. Perhaps he goes to a doctor who gives him morphine or some sedative with which to taper off. Then he begins to 
begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums because this keeps getting worse and worse and worse over time. Now, there's a reference in here that's almost funny. It's to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which was written by Robert Louis Stevenson. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a book about a man who was meek and mealy-mouthed and kind of, you know, kind of namby-pamby, and then he drinks a potion and he becomes a tough ruffian and he becomes a ladies' man and he becomes a villain. Well, there was a lot of alcoholism in Robert Louis Stevenson's family. His own father was a white cheating alcoholic of the fall-down drunk variety. And Robert Louis Stevenson's wife said to him, Bob, where did you get such an idea for a book? This is ghastly. I wonder where. A book about a man who drinks a potion and whose personality and demeanor completely changes to the evil? You can't get that from anything but the experiences that he had as a boy growing up with alcoholism around him. Think about that for just a minute. This is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic as our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he has sometimes displayed with respect to other matters? Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached. Little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. Why is because I have a twist of the mind and an allergy of the body. And I'm reminded of the people who are searching for the why answers. My friend Sherry B. is dead. She died about eight years ago. What a brilliant psychologist in Chicago. She worked at Evanston Hospital for many years in their family hospital doing therapy. She became a mediator for Cook County and saw dreadful things, dreadful things, and comforted people who had come out of hell. But Sherry would not put the food down because she in her mind was not we're not, she was not going to put the food down until she got an answer to the why question. She had to have a forensic analysis that it was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that she ate in 1961 while she was fighting with her mother about God knows what. And she died in the food. The why will not get me to first base. I no longer concern myself with why because the book tells me that it is an allergy of the body and it is a twist of the mind and that food does something for me that it does not do for the normal temperate eater. Food will produce in me an effect that feels real good. Kit Kat bars, raisinets, Doritos, ice cream for about nine seconds makes me feel fantastic. It doesn't do that for the normal temperate eater, but it does it for me. And that is what my brain is looking for when it pushes me into the food. And the body says, we like, and it kicks off 
an involuntary allergy of the body making it impossible for me to stop. That once I start, I cannot stop on my own. And the more I eat, the more I want, the more I want, the more I eat, the more I eat, the more I want, and it's just endless. What we're going to talk about here in another few minutes is what if I could find a way to live where my mind doesn't lock in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by eating the food? What if I could find a way to live where I already feel better, making the food nothing, rendering it nothing? And that process of bringing God into the equation to interrupt the irreversible up to that point process of wanting the food and eating the food is called recovery. And that's what this is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what this is. So we're talking now about the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. We're no longer talking about the food, the food, the food. We've unshackled ourselves from the first half of the first step, and we are moving on. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We are equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop the allergy. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, this is important, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Let me read that again. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. And that means that all the television commercials that you're going to see and are already starting to see them, but you will see them a lot more once the Christmas stuff is done in a few days for the gyms, the diets, the Nutrisystems, the Weight Watchers and the Jenny Craig and all the rest of them. What they're going to focus in on is if you lose weight, you won't eat so much. We'll teach you how to control your weight. We'll teach you how to control your appetite. And for us, that's absolutely impossible. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body is wonderful news because a spiritual awakening will alter the mind and there's nothing that can be done for the physical allergy. I was born with the physical allergy. I will die with the physical allergy. I was born with the twist of the mind. I'll die with it. But the twist of the mind will be rendered temporarily dismantled by the working of the steps. That the steps will do for me what the food used to do for me with none of the devastating, death-defying side effects. I will no longer need to feel better by doing something that's killing me. I will feel better by doing something that's helping me and hopefully helping others. <laughs> if you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis 
sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of a man, <clears throat> excuse me, who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can feel the he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. There isn't another group of people in this world who go to the bathroom sick to their stomach from compulsively overeating and they're, they're, they're retching or, or it's coming out the other end and they're sick and the, the tears are falling out of their face as they look in the mirror and they wash their hands and they are vowing to God that they will never eat like this again. And they walk out of the bathroom distended, gassy, they walk out with diarrhea. They walk out ever having their, they're barfing their guts out. And what do we do? We go where? To the refrigerator to find something to eat to make the intense pain of eating go away. Now, they may have another word for that, but I call that insanity. How many times have I eaten and eaten and eaten to try to make the pain of overeating go away? And we can laugh at people that say, yeah, that's like hitting your head against the wall to make the pain of hitting your head against the wall go away. Well, I've done the same thing. I've done the same thing. Once in a while, he may tell the truth. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. I had no more explanation as to why I did what I did than you could explain why uh, people in France speak French or why the moon is... The, I have no explanation. None. All I knew is that more than anything in this world, I wanted to not eat, and more than anything in this world, I wanted to eat one more cookie. All I ever wanted to be was thin, and all I ever wanted to do was eat, and I was engaging in the one behavior that was barring me from every dream I ever dreamed in my life. There is the obsession an obsession is a thought which pushes all thoughts to the contrary aside. There is an obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. I wanted to die. I knew I was down for the count. I knew I'd never beat the game, and I didn't want to live anymore. Dr. Silkworth says we lose confidence. How could I not have lost confidence? Everything I did failed. Everything I did failed. Everything I wanted was beyond my reach. I didn't fit in my skin, and I didn't fit in my desk, and I didn't fit in my clothes, and I didn't fit in furniture, and I didn't fit in cars, and I didn't fit in movie theater seats, and I didn't fit in sporting event seats. Who wouldn't lose confidence? Am I that horrible, really, that I should be the butt of jokes? People laughing at me, throwing things at me, patting my stomach, 
children laughing at me in public places? Am I a horrible monster? Really? Really? Am I that horrible of a person? Because I didn't feel like that horrible of a person. But I wanted to die because evidently I was. How true this is, you realize in a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer would rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will, or in other words, the day I would join the gym and start lifting weights and running and jogging and jumping and go on a diet. Well, I was waiting for that day too. The tragic truth is if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. No kidding. He has lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. The tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink, and that is the product of the mental blank spot. The mental blank spot will not allow me to see the consequences of eating and it will work effectively so that all I can focus in on is why I deserve the Oreo cookies, why nobody's going to tell me I can't eat Oreo cookies and I'm going to eat the Oreo cookies and F you and the mental blank spot will not allow me to see that the Oreo cookies are going to kill me because in my mind, this time, I deserve them, and this time, I want to eat them, and I'm never going to eat them again, so I might as well eat them all this time to make sure I don't have any in the house. People talk about, in a way, food is my drug of choice. Hey, if food was my drug of choice, I wouldn't be on the phone this morning with you. Food is my drug of no choice. Where food is concerned, I have lost the power of choice. Heroin is my drug of choice. I've never used it, so I can choose not to use it today. Cocaine is my drug of choice. I have no, I've never taken it. I've never done it in my life. Alcohol is my drug of choice. I could choose never to drink alcohol again. Wouldn't need a book or steps or meetings or anything. Wouldn't have to do inventories, nothing. I've never in my life thought, gee, I want to drink alcohol. Never. Food is my drug of no choice. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea. I love that threadbare idea, that metaphor. At this time, we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is the complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove some point in our childhood, we touched something that was way too hot. We cried and it hurt and our brain focused in on that and it will not allow us to do that. You can't take a meal out of an oven that's been in there red hot with no, you know, kitchen mitt or gloves. Your mind won't let you do it. But when it comes to eating ice cream or it comes to eating Doritos, my mind will not focus, function normally. 
The alcoholic may say to himself in the most casual way, it won't burn me this time, so here's how, or perhaps he doesn't think at all, how often have some of us begun to drink in this nonchalant way and after the third or fourth pounded on the bar and said to ourselves, for God's sake, how did I ever get started again? Only they have that thought supplanted by, well, I'll stop with the sixth drink or what's the use anyhow. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, he's probably placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up may die or go permanently insane. These stark and ugly facts have been confirmed by legions of alcoholics throughout history, but for the grace of God, there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations so many want to stop but cannot. There is a solution. Here it is again. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. The word requires is the one we miss. And we try to skirt around it. And we're taking a year to work each step. Or we're taking a year to do a fourth step or God knows what. The steps are perfectly in order and they are worked and worked and worked. And if you are listening to this and you have a sponsor that's telling you something else, change, change, change for its successful consummation. But we really saw that it really worked in others and we had to come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When therefore we were approached by those in whom with the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet, the steps. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. This is the second reference in the book to a fourth dimension of existence, the fourth dimension being the spiritual, the spiritual. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. I need a living God who lives in a way. I need a living God. What can living things do that dead things cannot do? They can grow, adapt, and change. And I need a God today that's different from the God I had three and a half years ago when I got divorced. And I need a different God today when my life was different five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago. My God today is a living God that grows and adapts and changes. And I would very strongly suggest, since we've already alluded to it in the asterisk, that when you're off the phone with this, that you go through with your sponsor or go through individually Appendix 2 in the back of the book because the book was written from the standpoint of the spiritual experience, that sudden and profound change. Most of us aren't going to have that. Mine did not come that way. Mine was slow developing. I have a spiritual awakening, not a spiritual experience. And so I need to go through that because that was written after the first printing of the first edition was without and they changed the wording of step 12 from spiritual experience to spiritual awakening because people were writing in and saying, gosh, what's wrong with us? We're doing everything in the book, and we're not having this sudden, profound experience. And Bill wrote Appendix 2. It's very important. 
And the other thing that's important is I have to formulate a God that I'm willing to believe in. The God of the Bible, the God of whatever it is you, you may have used in your life, if that works for you, fine. But for many of us, we wrestle with that idea of that God because that God didn't give us what we wanted. So I had to fire that God and I had to hire a new God. That's just things I needed to do. Maybe you don't, but these are the things I needed to do. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. If you are a serious alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. Many times in the book, especially in Chapter 5, we're going to find that the result was nil until we let go, absolutely, and that half measures availed us nothing. It's a vending machine. If I put 99 cents in and the product costs a dollar, I'm going to get nothing out. I'm either in or I'm out. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible, and if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. Now, step two comes to us from Dr. Jung in Switzerland. Dr. Jung told Roland Hazard of the vital spiritual experience. Roland comes back and he goes to the Oxford group and he meets Sieber Graves Jr. And Sieber Graves and Roland bring this idea of the Oxford group and the steps that they were using, this spiritual awakening to Ebby. And Ebby in Bill's story brings this to Bill. And Bill wrestles with this and he says, well, Ebby was sober. And he says, my ideas about miracles were revised right then. No longer was he looking for the splitting of the Red Sea. No longer was he looking for the, the oil that burned for eight days when it should have burned for one. He was looking at an alcoholic who was not drinking at that moment, and that was all he needed. Would he have it? Of course I would. Let's look at the history of step two, and then we'll be done for the morning here because Leah's going to start getting on me here in about six minutes that we're going to be done. Okay. Roland Hazard is who we're talking about, and Dr. Jung. A certain American businessman, he had ability, good sense, and high character. For years, he had floundered from one sanitarium to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist, Dr. Jung, who prescribed for him, though experience had made him skeptical. He finished his treatment with unusual confidence. His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to this doctor, whom he admired, and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational and well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. 
He could never regain his position in society, and he would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. This was the great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. Why does, he does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where other free men may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Uh-huh. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Here's your emanation point for step two. Here is where step two came from. This is where it, the history goes down to the root. Jung telling Roland, Roland will bring that back. He and Sebergraves Jr. will bring this to Ebby. Ebby will bring it to Bill, and Bill brings it to the world. But here is your history of step two and how it came into the program. To me, these occurrences are phenomena. He called them phenomena because he didn't understand them. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Now, let's look at how many times Dr. Jung is going to allude to the concept of change with Roland. Here, they appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements, change, and rearrangements, change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men, are suddenly cast to one side change, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begins to dominate them, change. In fact, I have been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement, change, within you. With many individuals, the methods I employed are successful, but I have never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. And then again, you get a reference to Appendix 2. I recommend it strongly. So what has to change in recovery? Everything. Everything. I must change from who I was. On page 63, it's going to say, we were reborn. I am not the person I was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Absolutely different. Bring your life to God in the steps and work these steps and see the miracles. Test your God. Work these steps. See if you can find him lacking. I bet you you cannot do it. If you work these steps, you will not fail. You, will not, you won't compulsively overeat either. Upon hearing this, our friend was somewhat relieved, for he reflected that after all, he was a good church member. This hope, however, was destroyed by the doctors telling him that while his religious convictions were very good, in his case, they did not spell the necessary vital spiritual experience. I don't have the time, but there is a vast difference between religious things and the spiritual experience that we need, the awakening that we need through the step. There are nuns, priests, ministers, rabbis that are in the rooms compulsively overeating. 
because their religious training may be fantastic. They're not working the steps, having a, a vital spiritual awakening. Let's finish. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, which, as we have already told you, made him a free man. We, in our turn, sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. This has to be the number one thing in my life today. And you see people all the time. They're calling me and they're telling me all this other stuff, and I tell them, you're not working the program. Yeah, but I can't do anything with my sponsor because I don't want to hurt her feelings. Oh, okay, whatever. Uh, when I am drowning, I don't worry about anything except getting my next breath of air. What seemed at first a flimsy reed had proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. The distinguished American psychologist William James in his book, Varieties of Religious Experience, indicates a number of ways in which we have discovered God. We have no desire to convince anyone that there is only one way by which faith can be acquired. If, that, if what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator. There's that reference again to a living creator. Living things can grow, adapt, and change. Dead things can't. With whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Those having religious affiliations will find here nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There's no friction among us over such matters. We think it no concern of ours what religious bodies our, mem our members identify themselves with as individuals. This should be an entirely personal affair which each one decides for himself in the light of past associations or his present choice. Not all of us join religious bodies. Most of us favor such memberships. In the following chapter, there appears an explanation of alcoholism, as we understand it, then a chapter addressed to the agnostic. Many who were once in, that in this class are now among our members. Surprisingly enough, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Further on, clear-cut directions, that's chapter 5, are given showing how we recovered. These are followed by 42 personal experiences. If you're ever asked a trivia question, how many stories are in the big book? 42, doesn't change. Each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view the way he established his relationship with God. These give a fair cross-section of our membership and a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in their lives. We hope no one will consider these self-revealing accounts in bad taste. Our hope is that many alcoholic men and women desperately in need will see these pages, and we believe that it is only by fully disclosing ourselves and our problems that they too must be persuaded to say, yes, I am one of them too, I must have this thing. And to sum up about chapter two, there is a solution. The solution is not in the food plan. The food plan is vital, no question about it. The solution is not in exercise. Exercise is vital. It's not what we're talking about. It's not in getting stuck in the first half of the first step. The solution is in the working of all the steps every day throughout my life. And that is the solution. And there is no other. There is no other. With that, I will pass. Thank you. 
Harlan, thank you so much for your beautiful explanation and your insights into Chapter 2, There's a Solution. And, of course, thank you for your perseverance through our technical challenges this morning. Thank you to everyone for your patience. We will open the floor now for questions related to Chapter 2. If you have a question on your mind, press star 1 to unmute to pose your question. Hi, this is Linda. I'd like to ask um, Harlan, um, you had said right in the very beginning that you you didn't cause it, you didn't create it, the, the disease um, of compulsive overeating. How did you put that? I didn't cause it, I can't cure it, and I can't control it can't cure it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Who's next? Hi, this is Marietta. Can I ask a question? Of course, Marietta. Go ahead. Could he repeat the sound? Repeat the what? Marietta, we lost you there. Try again. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Marietta again. Could he uh, repeat the summary of the chapter, my phone, and just now just went wacky again? Okay. There is a solution, means that there is one, and that's through the steps. The purpose of all this, there is a solution, is to reinforce to us that we've established the problem in Chapter 1, Bill's story, and we get the problem, in, in the doctor's opinion. We understand more now about the problem than we ever did. So we're not going to be talking about alcohol anymore. We're going to be talking about the solution. And the solution is a spiritual awakening as the result of working the steps. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Marietta. Who's next? Hello, this is Jackie. Jackie, go ahead. You know, I hear working the steps, but what does that mean, working, in in actual? That there is action that needs to be taken, and there, there are people who have been around OA for years that have the same question. They Their idea of anything is they read a couple of paragraphs out of things, and they think about it and write about it and pray on it. That's not working the steps. Working the steps is this. The first three steps are not working steps. They are conclusions of the mind. But 4 through 12 are action steps. They require action. The inventory of 4, the giving it to someone else in 5, then there's prayer in 6 and 7, but then 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are action steps that require action every single day. And if you have a sponsor, Jackie, that is not bringing you through that, you need someone else. You need someone that's steeped in the big book. There is action to be taken every single day. 10, 11, and 12 means it will bring you back through the steps every single day. So there's action involved. And if you're still not sure of what that is, 
I would strongly suggest getting a sponsor that is very, very steeped in the big book and not the other stuff and get you into that situation where you're doing four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve every day of your life. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Who's next? Hi. Hi. <coughs> Sorry. Hi, this is Mary. Um, Mary. How do you how do you get a sponsor? Go to meetings. Find somebody who has what you want. If you can't find it in OA, because a lot of OA meetings, it's the blind leading the blind. I get that. In a lot of yeah. OA meetings, there's it's just the blind leading the blind. Go to yeah. AA. If yeah, you I have find someone. I'm sorry? Yeah. I do have an AA sponsor. I just thought you needed a sponsor in this program as well. Uh, it would help, but it's not, you know, the, the, the steps are the steps. The spiritual awakening is the spiritual awakening. Okay. Thank you. I have a question. Thank My you, Mary. Anna. Mary, we also invite you to, um, on a vision for you, tomorrow morning perhaps or Monday through Friday, you can also uh, state that you're in need of a sponsor. There are certain times uh, that we do that, so I invite you to 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 do that. Go ahead. Next question. Please identify yourself. Hi, this is Janine. Can I Janine. have uh, hi uh, phone numbers? Um, is it Roland, the speaker? Or are you going to get phone Carlin. numbers? The end? Carolyn, I, I can't. My phone's not that great. We're having an ice storm here in New York. Well, um, can we have? Can I have your phone number? Yeah, my phone number is four eight zero four nine five. Eight nine six one. That number again is four eight zero four nine five eight nine six one. And my email address is Harlan H A R L A N two eight eight at gmail dot com. Harlan H A R L A N two eight eight at gmail dot com. You can call me anytime. Once when I buy a phone, I put it on silent vibrate, and I never change it. So if you call me at two in the morning, one in the morning, it's perfectly okay. It will disturb no one. I live, I live with my German Shepherd, and we're both okay with it. Okay, thank you very much. No problem. All right. Thank you, Janine. Thanks, Harlan, for the contact info. Who's next? I have a question. My name is Rhonda. Rhonda, your turn. Go ahead. Okay, thank you so much, Harlan. Thank you so much for your service. I um, I, I got a lot from it. I agree with it. I practice it. My one question is, being a member of, of OA for well over 30 years, um, you know, uh, the, the question is, as an, as an alcoholic, you know, an alcoholic putting down the alcohol, obviously not needing alcohol, but as, a, you know, food as a nutritional source. So my mm-hmm. question to you is, as you said, the food plan is, is important. Is, I know the goal is, you know, it's a spiritual, having a spiritual awakening and a psychic mm-hmm. change. But is mm-hmm. physical, um, is, is, it, is it appropriate to say that one, that something that should happen or perhaps may happen is that each of us is working toward or maintaining a healthy body weight and not living perhaps in an obese or anorexic body? Right. Yeah, you, I, I would agree with you 100% that I must be at or approaching a normal body weight, absolutely, 
But I think one of the things that we do to shoot ourselves in the foot is we either underplay the value of weight in food or we overplay the value of weight in food. There is, there is a, a term, fat serenity. I've been fat and I've been serene, but never at the same time. Um, but the other thing that we don't hear enough of is is the term abstinence is, is really, it, it can be kind of misleading. What I'm looking for is sanity around the area of food. I got a call not long ago from a woman in Atlantic City, New Jersey, or near Atlantic City, New Jersey, and she was just hysterical. She was crying. She was just hysterical. And she, she told me that she, she was ready to kill herself, and she didn't know how she was going to go on living. And she had ordered a stuffed tomato. She was at lunch, and she ordered a stuffed tomato. And she ordered it with tuna salad, and she was halfway through it, and she realized that they put in chicken salad rather than tuna salad. And is she still abstinent, and should she kill herself? And all? I said, we're looking for sanity around our food. Sanity. She says, we still love you. I never met this woman. We still love you. We, we, everybody still loves you. Everybody still thinks you're wonderful. But Rhonda, we absolutely must be, you know, at or approaching a normal body weight, but at the same time, sanity around food. You know, you get these people, well, what happens if I want to eat a peach for my fruit and uh, my peach is lousy and I want to eat an orange instead. Go eat the orange. It's, it's, not, it's not about peach or orange. It's about sanity. Thank you, Rhonda, for the question. <laughs> Thank you. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Uh, this is Cheryl. I, I just wanted to ask Carlin to please repeat his uh, Gmail email one more time. Cheryl, my Gmail is H-A-R-L-A-N-288 at gmail.com. And it's the numeral 88. I was hearing A. It's 88, the two numerals, correct? No. Harlan. 288 at gmail.com. Yes, those are numerals, Cheryl. Yes. Harlan, 288, gmail. Thank you. Right, 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 right. Yes. Thank you. Anyone else? Questions regarding Chapter 2, there is a solution. Star 1 to unmute. Hello? Yes, go ahead. We hear you. Yeah, my name is Nancy. I would first like to thank Harlan for um, his, uh, um, his presentation that he shared this morning. I got a lot from it. I'd like for him to address the various um Factions that have developed in our fellowship, um, and and you know the various rooms that we have, ninety day rooms, gracie, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and if you think that prohibits, if, if that has prohibited the success of our fellowship as opposed to AA, I think that it has hurt us more than it has helped us. I think that there's a lot of people out there that are angry that they are not the founders of OA, and so they want to start these offshoot groups. 
Uh, I, I am not a real expert on a lot of the offshoot groups. What I don't understand is why we have to keep fragmenting and splitting. I think that one of the things that we see is that in unity there is strength and, and the tradition of unity. I, I don't see why we can't all come together. I, I happen to live in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is, for those who do not know, I live in greater Phoenix, Arizona. Scottsdale is a rather large, but it's a suburb of Phoenix nonetheless. And uh, there are offshoot groups here that will not publish OA meetings in their newsletters, and they will not allow us to publish their meetings in our newsletter. Uh, it, it's become insane. It's become absolutely crazy. And I think most of the offshoot groups that I see are stuck in the first half of the first step. They're just stuck in the first half of the first step, and they will not move forward from it. Uh, if somebody is finding recovery in the, in the other groups, fantastic. I don't understand why we need all the offshoot groups at all. I don't understand why we can't just recover out of the big book and have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps, no matter what your food plan is. So if you want to use gray sheets or whatever, you know, God bless you. You know, I, I just don't understand the necessity for it, and I never have, and, and, and I don't know that I ever will. I don't get it. So, Nancy, I, I hope that that, uh, that helps. But I, I just really don't see why we have to have all these various offshoot groups. This is Cheryl. Nancy, thank you for the question. Cheryl, your turn. Hi, Harlan. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. I'm really learning a lot about the uh, this, the big book and um, working the steps. What do you mean when you say stuck in the first half of the first step? Okay. The first half of the first step is we were we admitted we were powerless over food. And they and, and, and that obsession to continue to focus in on the food, the food, the food, the food. We and they're not moving into the sunlight of the spirit. They're not moving into the spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. And you see people that are absolutely obsessed with that first half of the first step. And unless I move into the sunlight of the spirit in the rest of the steps, Cheryl, I'm on a diet. And I don't know about you, Cheryl, but diets don't work for me. Diets don't work for me. And I'm not going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. And if I don't have a spiritual awakening as a result of the rest of the steps, I'm going to be eating Kit Kat bars and Doritos and Raisinets before you can say today's Sunday. Mm-hmm. And that's what yes. I mean by that. Yes, we have thank to you. move forward. And once I have a spiritual awakening, the food becomes moot. The food becomes moot. It, it becomes like nothing. I'm benign. Thank you, Harlan. Okay. This is Leah. Cheryl, thank you for the question. Leah, your turn. Good morning. Thank you so very much, Harlan. I have a question for you. I wonder if I can get an explanation. Sure. Um, there is, uh, what is the difference between structure and, uh, and um, 
I don't know how to phrase it because I heard you say um, that there is, you know, there is no difference if you're going to have a peach or you're going to have an orange or whatever. Mm -hmm. And somehow I feel that once you start playing around with that peach Mm -hmm. or that orange, before Mm -hmm. you know it, it's going to happen. It's going to build up and it's going to, you know, what, what's a big deal. And, for me, for me, structure is, is to that's what this program has brought me. It has brought me complete structure. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, so I wonder if you can explain, do you understand my question? What I think um, you're, what you're asking me, Leah, is if I commit or I think I'm going to have a peach and I just have an orange, where will that lead to? If I'm working the rest of the steps, it won't lead anywhere. If I'm stuck in the first half of the first step, and I'm locked into this, this food thing, and I eat an orange instead of a peach, and I'm going to consider myself in total relapse, then that structure becomes a prison, and it's going to imprison me in a diet. That's it. That's now, really, it. Now, really yeah. think no, about it. No, 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 when you start working with someone else, when, when you're new, it's, it really, I find it I very detrimental. I still tell them. First of all, I tell them this. We're going to move through... At, at, at the pace that the big book dictates. And if it's going to be where you're going to be jumping out the window because you ate a peach instead of an orange, then there are some other things going on there. Right. There are oh, some other things going on there. And I don't need to do the 180-degree swing from eating whatever is not nailed down to obsessing about is it a peach or is it an orange. It's a fruit. And we move on. And we move on. And the the thinking in me that says, because I ate a peach instead of an orange, now I'm going to eat ice cream, Doritos, and Raisinets, if I'm working the rest of the steps, will never happen. If I'm not working the rest of the steps, and I'm locked into that first half of the first step, yeah, now I'm playing with my food. I'm going to put one over on you. I'm going to eat a pear instead of a kumquat or whatever it is. I don't even know what a kumquat is really, but I just thought it sounded funny. But okay, the bottom okay. line is it's not about that. I'm going to have a fruit. Whatever looks good at the time, that's what I'm going to eat. It's not about that. Now, clearly, clearly ice cream and Doritos and and french fries or whatever it is, it's not going to be on my food plan today because I have sanity around my eating and I know that those things will kill me. When I'm going to get that pedantic about things, when I'm going to get that pedantic about things, I'm in trouble. No, no, what what I really, I'm sorry, Harlan. What I really meant was when I start working with other people who are really relatively new, the only way to get structure is by, by keeping to what you are committing to and, and just not changing it around because if there's a certain, there's a certain, um, uh, a certain pattern that you've you got to start focusing on and you've got to start not focusing on, which, which is what I'm trying to bring out. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't focus on, on the food anymore. You know, you mm-hmm. just give it over, and then continue to focus on it. But once you start playing around and you're new to this program, and then mm-hmm. you're, just, you're just not, you know, you're not adhering to it. And you're not, you're not giving yourself to it. That's what I meant to it, you know. So, okay. so that's what I meant with, okay, thank you anyway. Okay. okay. 
Thank you, Leah, for the question. Anyone else this morning? Chapter 2, there is a solution. Any questions? I have one more question. Yes, go ahead. Hi. Um, I'm hearing two people. Uh, Please identify yourselves. Hi, Harlan. This is Mary Lou from California. Mary Mary Lou from California. Hi, dear heart. How are you? Uh, How are you? It's good to hear you. Um, um, My question is about kind of the structure and the uh, of what you're talking about spiritual experience. For me, I have found that putting down the food and weighing and measuring has been a part of my process of spiritual experience. That because I'm a down and dirty uh, food addict, not not any different than you, but I need like the previous caller was saying, really structured food plan. And um, and I when I was talking to you and, and we were working together, Harlan, I talked to you a lot about food addicts and recovery, and it's very structured. There's a lot of weight loss, mm-hmm. people with long term back to back abstinence, and a lot of serenity. Are there different ways to have a spiritual experience? Is there a way? For a down and dirty 350-pound, 400-pound food addict, which is what they saw and see in those rooms, the other rooms, mm-hmm. is there a way to have a spiritual experience by just putting down the food and living a very structured life with the food and taking a walls? Is that another way to have a spiritual experience? Or Not by William, which I was, 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 was William James, when William James was talking about varieties of spiritual mm-hmm. experience, Mm-hmm. See, because for me, every time I put the, put the food on the scale and don't eat exactly what I want, mm-hmm. that is uh, that is a miracle. The day, mm-hmm. and not because I'm white knuckling it, not because mm-hmm. I want Doritos, but just because mm-hmm. I'm turning my will and my life over to God. Is there another way to have a spiritual awakening besides? Not by which I am familiar. Do you know about SA in recovery, food addicts? No, recovery? no, I do not. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Mary Lou. Anyone else? Star one to unmute and please identify yourselves. Hi, this is Denise. Hi, Denise. Go ahead. Hi, Denise. Hi, I'm Denise. I'm, I'm from East Tennessee, and I've, uh, I'm struggling, uh, food addict, um, compulsive overeater. Um, and the issue that I have is um, something that you mentioned about your higher power and throwing it out and starting over and i i have a feeling that my my anger and my hurt uh regarding god needs to do that kind of thing and i just wanted to hear you talk about how you did that um i actually and- sit down and i write a job description for god and i had to really look at my life and i'm pretty normal in this respect I really thought God screwed me over. I really thought that because I was a fat kid and I had a mentally ill mom and my dad had gone through what he had gone through and I didn't get a pony and I didn't get I didn't get this and I didn't get that. Oh, woe is me that God really screwed me over. And like most normal human beings, I've had a lot of pain in my life. I didn't you know, I didn't go on my first date with a girl until I was 35 years of age. And I find that, you know, there's all these various disappointments made me think that God was out to screw me. 
And so that kind of God in my head and in my heart would not work. The God of my childhood, the God of my religion was not going to keep me out of the food for four seconds. Now, maybe that God would keep someone else out of the food. That's fine. Wasn't going to keep me out of the food for four seconds. And so I had to have a God that I am willing to believe in. I have to have a God that I'm willing to hold hands with and walk through life through all the various ups and downs. I can't have a God in my head that, that, that's going to screw me over. And when I yelled F you at my mom and I rode my bike on Saturday and when I did all these various terrible things in my life, well, God was going to get me for that. That's what I was told. So if I have a God in my heart and I have a God in my head that I'm not willing to believe in, I'm not going to recover because it is a willingness. So in order to be willing, I had to have my own conception of God. Now, I don't argue too much with my own conception of pretty much anything. You let me believe the way I want to believe, and I'm pretty much in there. But I had to stop trying to force the hippo out through the dog door. I had to stop thinking that I could believe in this God that I've never believed in. And I had to fire that God and get a new one. Denise, thank you for the question. Uh, I appreciate your um, your words, and I think um, for those of us who are, are struggling with our higher power and that anger and hurt, um, this is a very good recommendation. I appreciate you, Harlan. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. <clears throat> thank you, Denise. Who's next? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Angela from New York. Can you hear me? Yes, Angela, yeah. go ahead. Um, first, I just want to um, thank you, um, Harlan. That was really um, well done. I, I'm just so encouraged. Um, I'm one of these people, I guess, that's been in the uh, first half of the step for, for freaking forever, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's always been a struggle, <clears throat> excuse me, for me with different sponsors. Um, and in saying to them, I don't understand you know, like I feel like I'm trading one um, bondage for another. When you say I have to weigh and measure without exception, and if I switch from string beans to spinach, I'm a failure. I'm I'm shaking your program. Like I've gotten so I, I felt like in in a way I got so beat up in the process by um, uh, the difference between when you talked about the insanity. It's almost like um, I feel like in many ways. Um, Almost controlled, like it's you know, and I I, I kind of swung the opposite direction. Like I'm not gonna take a sponsor. I'm not gonna do any of this because it feels so intensely controlling that I can't mm-hmm. even think for myself. And not mm-hmm. to blame people, places, or things, but um, wow, just everything that you shared was like light bulb, light bulb, light bulb. Like this is the stuff that I've been struggling with for so long, and I too um have to have a different view of the God of my childhood, because the God of my childhood was like punishing and. The God that I have today is not about punishing me. But I think some of the challenge here is the renewing of the mind and um, unwinding these tapes that are in our heads, um, you know, that lead me to that first bite, lead me to not taking care of myself, not loving myself and loving others the right way because, um, you know, I have this punishing thought process that's, like, been ingrained in me for so long. And, you know, when I came into the program, 
having already had a spiritual awakening and found this loving God and then quickly um, was told I was no good or was wrong because I switched from string means to spinach, mm. you know, that's pretty heavy stuff. And never really did work the, the actual steps because I don't feel like out there in the rooms there's a lot of people doing that. So I'm mm-hmm. so grateful um, that I was on here today and I'm hoping for like a new beginning, you know, and um, mm-hmm. even though it feels like it's the worst of times, it's the best of times. And so thank mm-hmm. you so much for all of what you shared and all of what everybody else shared. Very powerful. Great day. You're very welcome. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Any other questions related to Chapter 2? There is a solution. Star Wars to unmute. Tara? Yes. Hi, Pat. Tara? Tara. Yeah, I hear Sarah, but who's first here? And Pat? Yes. Okay, please go ahead with your question. Questions only, please. Thank you. Hi, this is Pat in Washington, and my question for Harlan. Hi, my question for you, Harlan, is: um, Could you um, talk about um, a timing of a spiritual awakening slash spiritual um, experience? I know I've been in the rooms for many years, but um, I feel like after 25 years, I finally found it Mm -hmm. or was open for open to um, having spiritual experience. Could you talk about the timing piece? Uh, I don't understand. The timing of, of what? When you'll have your spiritual awakening, your spiritual experience. Yeah. It will change yeah. over time. It, it begins when you begin. It really begins. It, it, there's really an emanation point uh, in step two. We read it this morning. Uh, but this is this is my this is my honest opinion. It begins right at the beginning, and then it changes and deepens over time. And the more work I do, and the more steps I take, and the more I work with others, the more it changes and grows. And and I never know what I'm going to hear. I never know what I'm going to learn that's going to deepen my understanding of what I do not understand. There is so much out there. Uh, the things that are part of my life today, uh, yesterday, just yesterday, I saw my uh, ex-wife. I have not seen her for years. We've been divorced for three and a half years. I was in such a place of neutrality. I was in such a place of peace that it didn't bring about any type of fear, any type of anger, I was able to look at her and say, it's really nice to see you. I don't think that would have been possible four, five, six years ago. And I've been around these rooms 34 years. So it it deepens over time. It changes over time. And again, it goes back to a living God. And living things can grow, adapt, and change, and dead things can't. So I think that when a person makes a very bare beginning, step three in the big book is referred to as a beginning and a decision. And we are told that once we commence, that things start happening right away. So I don't think that there is a timing. I think that there is a metamorphosis and that there is a beginning point and that it doesn't stop changing until we're dead. Thank you. Thank you, Pat, for the question. Our next question from Sarah, please go ahead. Good morning. Thank you for your service, Leah, and thank you so much, Harlan. 
uh, from sunny Arizona, which was where mm-hmm. I started in recovery. Uh-huh. Uh, right now we have about four inches of snow in Iowa. Um, what I wanted to, to discuss briefly was just um, about people that are struggling with the food and how you walk through mm-hmm. the steps. You're on step two, let's say, with with a with a person that you're sponsoring, and mm-hmm. oh, brief periods where they're kind of struggling with the food, but they're, mm-hmm. you know, you're working with them, you're going through the big book, you know, you're mm-hmm. you're looking for the conception of the higher power and trying to get them to find what it is for themselves through the big book, and um, you know, I I keep walking through, uh, I don't stop, and I don't know what you're what your opinion is on that. I'd like to hear how you feel about that, if I could, please. Dr. Silkworth tells us in the doctor's opinion that the only solution we have is entire abstinence. And entire abstinence for a compulsive overeater is obviously something that's that's going to be different from the alcoholic. An alcoholic doesn't drink at all. Well, we obviously we have to eat, but I don't have to compulsively overeat. So at some point, I will say to the person, you must put down the food. Because when I'm eating Kit Kat bars or I'm eating ice cream or I'm eating uh, 42-ounce, you know, steaks or whatever it is, I'm not going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of anything. I'm drunk. I'm absolutely stoned on, on good and plenties. So the bottom line is at some point I have to make a decision. What is it I want? I must put down the food, the excess food. The alcoholic foods must, there must be a cessation. And then I move through the steps, and the miracle is I will no longer want those foods. If I'm still fighting them, then there are unmade amends, there are unmade steps, something is wrong, something is going on there that is just not consistent with the steps. So at some point, I must want to put down the food enough so that I put it down. If I don't want to put down the food, I'm not going to put down the food. It starts with wanting to. And have I suffered enough pain? Have I have I have I split enough pants? Have I have I broken enough furniture? If not, there's nothing that can be done for me. This is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. And doing it means I put the damn food down. Thank you, Sarah. Important question. Thank you very much. And we'll take another question. Who else has a question related to Chapter 2? Hi, Harlem. This is Bonnie from Scottsdale, Phoenix. Oh, hi, Bonnie. Hi. Um, I have a problem uh, in working with other people with with the word normal because mm-hmm. um, because in, in I, I see people all the time comparing themselves with people that aren't in the program. And just as an example, um, where I live, which um, is not too far from where you live, mm-hmm. uh, which is a country club setting, people are popping pills all the time just so that they can eat anything they want to eat. And mm-hmm. and that is 
what people see as normal. They see as normal um, during the Christmas holidays, people eating everything and anything they want to eat because it's a holiday. Mm-hmm. And to me, normal is nuts. And I have a really hard time in in getting people to take a look at the word healthy because mm-hmm. to me this program is a program of health. It's a program mm-hmm. of integrity and a program in health. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to know how you work with that because I hear you use the word I don't even. I don't lot. even, I mean, if I'm working with somebody that, wants to pop pills so that they won't eat, or I'm working with someone that wants to eat everything in sight, I tell them, go ahead and do it, because there's nothing I can do for that person. There's just there's nothing I can do for that person. That oh, person's no. not in a frame where they're ready to hear any of this yet. I think the biggest thing is comparing themselves to what they see as a normal eater. If they think they're normal eaters, then maybe they are. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't wouldn't have a clue, Bon, honestly, uh, as to what to say to that person. I honestly wouldn't. If you still think you're a normal eater, then perhaps you don't need to be doing this. And perhaps you, you know, I, I, I wouldn't know what to tell them. Honestly, I would not know what to tell that person. Okay, and I this think has to be a... Thank you, Bonnie, for the question. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. And we'll take one last question here this morning related to Chapter 2. There's a solution. Hi, this is Jen. I have a question. Go ahead. Harlan Thunder, please. Um, just to clarify, Harlan, I um, am in a different group, that, a similar, very similar group division for you, but um, the theory of that group is that when you go through the steps after Step 9, you would have done the ability to um, put down the food. So they don't say that people have to put down the food before doing steps. Would you say that people have to put down the food first before doing the steps? Yeah, and putting down the food again is going to be a process. If I went back to eating the way I ate, you know, five, six, ten years ago, whatever it was, I'd gain weight in massive amounts. But, uh, yeah, you, you, you really have to put down the food. If I'm going to eat Kit Kat bars and I'm going to eat Doritos and ice cream, uh, I'm probably not going to have a spiritual awakening as a result of anything because I'm going to be drunk. I'm going to be altered. I'm not going to be able to get in touch with reality. So I have to put down the food. Dr. Silkworth, in in the doctor's opinion, says the only thing we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Uh, and again, and he, he refers to that two or three times in the doctor's opinion, that we must put down the food. We must put down the food. How am I going to do a fourth step? How am I going to do a fifth step? How am I going to do anything while I'm drunk on food? How is that going to work? Well, it's not going to. Now, that may change over time, but it's not going to work. Thank you for that question. Very important question. And Harlan, thank you for all your time this morning. Thank you. Explaining Chapter 2, there is a solution to us. Thank you for your time. Can I just have Harlan's number again? Yes, I will repeat the contact information. Harlan's phone number is 480-495-8961.
Again, 480-495-8961. Email address is as follows. Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N, 288 at gmail.com. Again, Harlan, the numerals 288 at gmail.com. And I'm going to close the meeting the way a vision for you always closes its meetings, and that's from the reading on page 164 from the chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.